In this episode of the Constructing Differences podcast, I am interviewing Rebecca Garden. Rebecca Garden is an associate professor of public health and preventative medicine at SUDI Upstate Medical University. Her research and writing focuses on literary studies, disability studies, public health humanities, dementia and aging studies, structural inequalities and health disparities, and so much more. So welcome, Dr. Garden. I'm wondering if you wanted to introduce yourself and kind of talk a little bit about the work that you do. Sure. So I'm Rebecca Garden. I'm an associate professor of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate Medical University. I'm a literature PhD, and my work is called Health Humanities, my field, and, you know, more particularly public health humanities. And so I use literature and literary studies and disability studies approaches and social theory to look at social and ethical and cultural issues related to health and public health and healthcare. I am interested in belonging um, and spaces of belonging, and it's not my training at all. So I'm kind of hesitant about, you know, suggesting I have expertise around this. But one thing that's really central to my research in pedagogy especially because it's um, something that's so needed and so lacking in healthcare and public health is to help unpack and make visible to reveal the structural inequalities that contribute to disability and illness and health disparities. So for me, a lot of that includes going way beyond the scope of the clinic So often the focus is really about individuals, it's individualizing, medicalizing bodies, um, really focusing on uh, issues of, you know, racism and bias as, you know, just these kind of interpersonal social dilemmas, rather than scoping out to see how is housing discrimination contributing to, you know, really serious inequalities that have material effects on bodies, not only through, you know, the kind of direct effects of, say, overcrowding and COVID, or, you know, living next to a I-81 and, and, you know, inhaling particulates all your life, but that it's also, you know, inequalities related to um, discrimination that has contributed to a lack of an accumulation of intergenerational wealth which has contributed to profound inequalities. I I don't know if you know this wonderful book and person, Keisha Aminashan Ducree, who wrote a book called The Place We Call Home about the disruption and dislocation of the Black community in Syracuse. Um, So I use her work, um, the work of sociologist Paul Jargowski, you know, his architecture of segregation, Ducree's work really ranges from uh, community-based participatory research and and, um, really wonderful mapping projects with women. So you would actually be super interested in that book, but, you know, to broader kind of histories and sociological um, analyses of um, these ways that spaces are created where certain bodies belong and certain bodies don't belong um, and the impacts on on health and ability that are related to that. And then there's the work I do on disability access um, as well. So yeah, 
that sounds like a huge amount of work. I'm wondering how you came across, you know, these interests and your education background and how maybe you came across these topics. So I think not surprisingly, my engagement in health humanities and disability studies came through personal experience, beginning with my best friend getting sick with AIDS uh, and then dying of AIDS complications while I was in graduate school. And the trauma I was experiencing with that and the disorientation, you know, one way that I dealt with that was by doing research on illness in, you know, actually in the 18th century when there wasn't really medicine to address what was, you know, the most disease and and injuries. And it was really social, right? So I was really interested in social and cultural approaches to healing, to medicine. So that kind of led me to, you know, this, this field where I learned so much more about Oh, the ways in which, I mean, you know, artists addressed HIV AIDS, not only in terms of like public health messaging around safe sex or something like that, but to really create community and to address stigma and create a sense of belonging and identity. These are very compelling issues for me. And disability studies was, um, you know, to me very closely linked and you know, what I learned from disability studies, it hadn't been so sort of clear and available to me was, you know, the insistence on the social construction of disability. So that really kind of opened up that world to me and led me down this path of doing something that's very deliberately cross-disciplinary, where, um, you know, my work really revolves around centering the experiences of people who are most impacted by health disparities and inequalities and inequities. So I use a lot of narrative, like first person narrative, but it could be um, graphic arts, you know, graphic memoirs or graphic novels. It could be fiction, video, like, but just, you know, that's, that's generated by those who are marginalized. And then I use a range of um, scholarly analysis to really scale out from that personal individual perspective to to unpack and reveal the social, political, and historical dimensions of what's at play in those those works. Um, And really to open them up, not as just personal experience, but also representing, you know, like in some cases, geopolitical kinds of issues of colonialism and so on. I feel like there that's kind of the history of how I got here. Mm-hmm. And health humanities is a really interdisciplinary field. So I'm very fortunate to work, like I work really closely right now with a historian of medicine and an ethnobotanist. You know, it's just like so liberating to be able to work with people who have very different um, disciplinary backgrounds. And I I feel like that's pretty fundamental to this work. Can I ask what an ethnobotanist is? Yeah, so she's an anthropologist who's trained in looking at, so her work, for example, is working with uh, new Americans who are growing their own food in Chicago. And she is documenting and representing how that food is medicine. 
you know, the ways in which it's nutritious and also has healing properties Mm -hmm. and recognizing and valorizing, um, you know, these uh, traditional or, um, you know, they're not, it's not necessarily indigenous, but say traditional forms of knowledge Mm -hmm. um, and, and healing. So, um, you know, she's, she's an anthropologist and also very knowledgeable about medical education. So kind of like an ideal person for me to work with collaboratively. Yeah, that's interesting. I love the, like the meeting of the uh, more modern versus traditional medicines. Um, I think that can lead to a lot of great outcomes. So I came across you and your work through the Mapping Access Project at SUNY ESF and Upstate Medical University and also Syracuse University in 2019, which explores inclusion, belonging, and barriers on the Upstate Medical University campus. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that process and that experience and maybe your thoughts on the um, products of that project. Yeah, so it was basically um, an educational uh, endeavor. It was an educational initiative. And um, in that regard, I feel pretty good about it. So those kinds of initiatives for me are really grounded in, you know, community-based participatory research and, you know, like the disability justice sort of, well, I guess I wouldn't, maybe that's a stretch because the the project was led by me and I don't identify as disabled, but I really tried to center the experiences of people who do identify as disabled or older. Um, so, it, you know, trying to respect the sort of imperative, nothing about us without us, right? So to, to convey that as like the key sort of learning objective, to whether it's architecture students, landscape architecture students, or students who are training to be healthcare providers, to you know understand that in order to design something, you, it needs to be inclusive. There needs to be representation. So that was kind of a gestalt thing, like experiential, that I wanted the students to encounter, and you know to just have kind of like disability humility in that process. And at the same time, the audits of analyses of the environment, I thought were pretty effective. And we ended up, it was right before the lockdown that we finished the poster that represented all of the um, different access barriers that were cataloged, as well as, you know, the kind of access successes. Um, And the lockdown happened and it was probably just three and a half months later, um, I was let go from my position as assistant dean of disability. And I I know that no one's replaced me. They were supposed to have just sort of like reassigned the work I was doing to somebody else. I I think they just, it was an austerity move. Mm -hmm. And so, um, We did present the poster at a conference, but beyond that, the university itself is not, I think, that interested in following up with that data. So um, it kind of remains to be seen. So in that regard, I feel like it it was intended to be something that could contribute to make change and, you know, maybe impact 
design, maybe impact the environment or policy, but it ended up being just simply educational. So mm-hmm. a little bit disappointing. I'm surprised to hear that. Well, I'm glad to hear that there was a research poster that was made and it was continued even after, because it started in 2019, I think it was fall and it was, there was analysis and then, you know, work to be done on the poster, but yeah, no, I'm sorry that there is no continuation, but I hope that there can be other opportunities to pursue that data and progress it further. My research mentor, Lori Brown, forwarded me the email to join the group. And then I just kind of joined in as an outsider because I really didn't have any connection to anyone there. But I feel like the sense of community was there in terms of what we were looking for. It was kind of very exploratory and something that I've never done before. So in terms of experience, it was for me very positive. And I think I took the strategies that I learned from there. So in terms of photographing um, observations and also the ideas that I gained in conversations with the people that were in my group. I took those and applied them to my own research where I walked the National Mall and kind of diagrammed experiences there. From my perspective, I identified as non-disabled. And so I think that those strategies were really helpful for me. I know you sent me also the Second Life Disability Resource website, and I took a look at that. And I was wondering if you want to share your thoughts on that or want to talk about it. You know, as far as Second Life, I feel like, I don't know, yeah, you said you took a look at that site. It's so normative and represents such a, actually, do you mind if I share my screen? Yeah, of course. And then I can, um, you have to give me. Here you go. Little first time coming across the term Second Life. Um, So I thought that was really interesting. Wait, say that again. The, The term Second Life. Wait, um, do you know about Second Life? I don't know. I don't know about Second Life. I have not come across this concept. So Second Life, I don't know a whole lot about it, but Second Life is its own thing. And I don't know if you looked into Nadi. I think I made reference to her. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. So she uses so second life is like a virtual reality game that a lot of people are really into and she's someone who has co-opted it really well to represent indigenous culture and narratives Mm -hmm. so you know some of this stuff i'm not sure what all she does i follow her on instagram Mm -hmm. but it's just like this brilliant co-optation I can't find it now, but she has these wonderful narratives that are like videos that she's made of indigenous stories and myths using second life to construct that. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's like she's taking an existing virtual reality game that's really normative mm-hmm. and reshaping it to her own use but then really having to sort out what it means to be using. Oh, so here finally is an example Mm -hmm. of this Haudenosaunee creation story 
But what does it mean to be using these really normative body types to represent indigenous culture and marginalized embodiment? Mm-hmm. So that's like my, my main introduction to Second Life is through mm-hmm. this artist that's really co-opting it. So then they take the same, you know, complex game world and they have this, you know, kind of like, uh, is it like clinical, you know, because mm-hmm. it's like Health Info Island. Does it have some kind of public health dimension to it but like Cape Abel you know just definitely problematic Mm -hmm. kind of constructions of disability and then I found out that someone was using this to create virtual reality simulations for medical students around dementia and so this is really where I feel like it would be great to have someone doing an intervention into this really normative consumerist medicalized framework of disability and in a virtual reality context Mm -hmm. Um, and you know bringing in inclusive design principles bringing in disability justice bringing in you know concepts that are really critically non-normative like crip time issues of access, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It seems like an opportunity that was missed or like a, a real miss in terms of the resources that they had to provide. And then they created this world that looks just like ours or the one that disables people. Well, I'm just assuming this is like for, you know, say kids with disabilities, you know, are encouraged to play these games, right? But then they're so institutional. They're they're inviting in them into these very institutional frameworks and with these concepts like special community where disability rights advocates have really protested the use of the term special as um, stigmatizing and f- misrepresenting access as special rather than global. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and the idea of the game ha- having this virtual space in itself assumes that people would have access to a computer and also to yeah. funds and also have, you know, the time to, I guess, play in this space I'm also wondering about the characters that they use because I was looking at the um, reviews section it's like it's selling some kind of product and then the images of the characters that they created were predominantly white skinny able-bodied images of people and so I wonder if that represents the user type of the space I'm really glad that you um, shared uh, Second Life because I've never come across this well, I hope it's, I hope it's helpful. It's just so in need of being hacked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm no, I'm no hacker, but I think it's a good, it's a really helpful starting point for the virtual reality. I hope to create through modeling. I do a lot of 3d modeling just for architecture work in itself, but I'm hoping to use virtual ra- reality to create spaces that are imagined and seeing how they might materialize later on. 
That's um, incredible. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. And I think that, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Pivoting a little bit, I'm wondering more about the work that you do and the writing that you do. You have an extensive CV. Have you received any criticisms in your work and how do you respond to them? I guess I'm always opening up my work to criticism and it's actually kind of part of like I think it's even part of the essay I wrote on the ethics of representation where it's explicitly about my positionality the problematic nature of my positionality you know what it means to be you know a white middle class cisgender you know settler colonial able-bodied person who is writing about disability, chronic illness, you know, racialization issues, and most recently, new American refugee literature. And so I haven't been super harshly critiqued, you know, except at like one conference, actually twice at giving conference papers the first time was very early in my career where someone was furious with all of us on a panel because we presented as non-disabled and that we were doing a panel on disability. And I felt like it was a really legit critique. I always have very strong lengthy positionality statements and disclaimers at the beginning of presentations um, and also in my published work. At some point, I will sort of engage with the ethically problematic nature of my positionality. Not super long ago, I did a paper on, it was actually addressing neurodiversity and this guy who I later became friends with was pissed at the panel again for being non-disabled. And my one colleague identifies as mad and I actually identified as post-traumatic. And, um, you know, so having a history of trauma and severe anxiety. And this was the first time that I kind of outed myself in that regard. I still identify as non-disabled when I do presentations because I feel that it's really politically problematic to claim disability when I am so often able to pass. It's also, you know, my condition is less severe than it was. And I don't feel like I encounter barriers at the level where I'm comfortable claiming disability. So that's kind of the, the biggest issue for me in terms of self-critique and criticism from others. Other than that, the one thing that's come up is my early work was really complicating the role of empathy in medical humanities. And not only pointing out the, you know, really kind of false assumptions about the idea that just reading literature or writing would make you more empathic. You know, I came from an English department 
where you know it was considered a shark tank like it did not make them more empathic or it made them empathic it was like in the way that the marquis de sade could experience the pain of his victims or something because empathy can be used in all sorts of ways and has been used you know to further colonialism and the institution of slavery and all sorts of problematic projects but through these critiques I've gotten blowback from people who have represented my work as critiquing empathy, as suggesting that people should not be empathic. And that's hardly the case. I actually feel like there's a role for empathy, but that it, that it needs to be ethically framed and understood and practiced. So those are the two kinds of critiques that come to mind. That's interesting, this idea of passing. I'm really fascinated with because I think a lot about the way we appear in space or the way we're perceived in space by others and especially that initial perception. And I think as humans, we're innately inclined to categorize people, whether it's gender, race, um, sexuality, et cetera, whether we like it or not, when we share a room with someone, there's that's kind of where our mind goes. And then from there, we make the decision to talk to them, listen to then form relationships and communicate with them. And then we learn that there are things that are invisible or non-disclosed or not discovered by these people. So I think it's what complicates things. And also the way I'm trying to incorporate that into architecture is like, how does space or where you're standing in a room dictate or change the way we perceive each other? I think um, of that. Just in terms of this is more like what my spouse does around mm -hmm. landscape architecture and, you know, like urban studies. But his advisor at Berkeley did studies of how people use streets and public space. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, if there are like four people standing on a corner, how does that get interpreted? Or just being outside, you know, barbecuing in a public space, you know, barbecuing in front of your house, as opposed to being inside or in the backyard, like how that space gets used gets really racialized. So we talked about critiques, it makes me think about being non-disabled in a field of disability and studying and writing about things that you don't share identities with. It makes me think about solidarity and I'm wondering what kinds of communities and groups uh, or networks that you belong to or support and how does that overlap with you and your work and what you're passionate about? Well, yeah, that's actually the other piece to where I am in terms of my research is, you know, the relationships that I've formed not only through, you know, organizations like the Society for Disability Studies, that have had a really big impact on, you know, my knowledge and my, my thinking about, you know, all my research, but also through relationships I've had here in this area of Syracuse and Onondaga County. Some key ones are, for example, with the Deaf New American community. It's a group of people who are kind of a subgroup within the New American or refugee community who are also deaf. They are mostly people who are Nepali ethnic from Bhutan, but there are also people from Burma and Eritrea. I've gotten to know 
you know, the kind of community leader, Manu Chetri, really well. And it was through that relationship and her advocacy that I played the role of helping to integrate them onto an urban farm called the Salt City Harvest Farm. It's actually at the urban edge, it's in Kirkville. And hearing refugees were on the farm, but not deaf refugees, deaf new Americans. And that became a really kind of amazing experience for me. It led to me working with my students to interview them about their experiences of food insecurity during COVID. Actually at the farm, I interviewed Manu about her experiences with barriers in communication access in healthcare. And, you know, that became a project that ended up in a publication for her. So getting her voice out there in a bioethics journal was really, you know, it's just one of the things I feel best about. So that they're really sort of not even sharing the, you know, the author role, but more just leveraging my position to enable hers. I work, you know, in my teaching, I teach collaboratively with other professors who are disabled or deaf. That has had a big impact on the way I teach, on what I teach. And also I work on centering people who are in the community, doing, organizing, making change themselves around issues that are shaped by health disparities. So I work with Timothy Noble Jennings Bay, who is the director of Street Addiction Inc. and one of the members of the trauma response team in Syracuse, who addresses neighborhood violence and trauma. So, you know, I kind of bring him to do these really big sessions at Upstate with students from all the different colleges. And that feeds back into my my own research. So it's really my relationships with communities that enable what I do and also um, kind of keep me aware of the limits of what I should be doing on my own. Mm-hmm. I have written a big chunk of curriculum. It's a whole unit of curriculum on immigration and identity and it's related to refugee experiences. And now that I've done it, I sort of, you know, want to um, just use my position as a placeholder to have someone who has that experience um, to do it themselves. So that's actually the next level uh, in a grant writing process. Mm -hmm. The, The PI is, you know, just already ahead of me in this with the whole project. Now that we've created like a foundational set of curriculum with this new model and approach, we now want to just make space for representation within this process. I'm very inspired and impressed by your efforts in the community and with others. Do you have any 
strategies or action items that you would recommend to those who are interested in becoming involved in their communities or their local communities and also to be in solidarity with groups that they would support but might not necessarily be a part of already? So I would just say, you know, following the tenets of community-based participatory research is just essential. And I have not been formally trained in that. I am not a social science person or someone who was trained in that as a background, but I came to it just through my love of reading and working collaboratively with, you know, people in feminist geography and rhetoric and writing studies and anthropology, sociology, people who have that kind of grounding. And then also just working in communities where they are telling me over and over, you know, we don't want you to come with your students and just extract their educational experiences and and lines on their resumes Mm -hmm. from this community and not give back. You know, there was just a big cross-campus research symposium put together to address inequalities related to COVID. And, you know, there was no one who was, who identified as disabled or deaf represented. So, you know, I really work hard to advocate for that representation. And it did in fact happen. Other projects that I've been involved in, you know, I'll just say, do you have interpreters? Do you have captioning? Can you make these documents screen reader accessible? Have you reached out to people who can't attend during the day, who don't have access to Zoom? Can we link to them in some way or another? And it's really time consuming. And I feel like people get pissed at me because I'm always like, you know, the, the, the stick in the wheel that just brings everything to a crashing halt. But again and again and again, I see that people want to start the project. And I, and I feel like we kind of did that with this curriculum. So, you know, also I think guilty of that, but you want to start the project, get it going. And then, then we're going to be inclusive. Then we're going to have diversity. And it's like, you've already designed it in this way. That's probably going to be so much less responsive and effective and innovative than if we just began with inclusion in the first place. So that's kind of my if I can be kind of professorial and give you advice yeah. that, that that's going to be a battle you're just going to have to fight over and over and get a thick skin about. And hopefully you'll have allies so you don't have to do it alone. I think that the, this, the crashing halt is something that I hope to see more and more people. I believe that I'm seeing more and more people around me Push for that. And, and then it's about getting people to make sure that when they do their slide shares, that their slides have content more in the middle of the slide yeah. so that you can still see the captioning and what's on the slide, you know, just all that accessibility stuff about not talking over your slide so that someone's trying to read it, but you're saying something different, you know, just there's layers and layers of stuff. Yeah, I know there are many layers, but I think that when we begin to practice them, they'll seem inherent and natural and it'll be, it'll be normalized or not normalized, but it'll be automatic. For most yeah. People. Yeah. Like keeping Zoom for people who, you know, may need to stay home because they're having, you know, health issues or 
having a hard time leaving home? Like, can we keep Zoom and have in-person stuff at the same time? And, you know, things like that. So I know that this hour is coming to close and I'm really appreciative of your time. A last question that I'd like to ask is, what are you hopeful for in the future of your field? Oh, I just feel like my field is exploding and it is so exciting. I see um, at you know our annual conference and on the listserv we have and just in different venues, I see that lots of people are interested in health humanities and public health humanities and disability studies, like interconnecting those and bringing all of these wonderful approaches and insights from their home disciplines to bear on this field. And my hope is that it will be able to be communicated to the culture of healthcare and healthcare education. And that's the really challenging part because it's so um, conservative it's so hierarchical that that kind of reinforces the conservative nature of it. It's so professionalized and, and filled to the capacity with all these professional requirements that there's not a lot of space for that. But I feel like the up and coming scholars and educators are just so innovative and engaging that I see this transformation happening and it's just so exciting. And the healthcare students, you know, the medical students I work with, the public health students I work with, they love it too. A lot of them want to do it and to interconnect that approach with, you know, analyses of systemic inequalities and and structural racism. So um, I actually have a lot of hope. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. And I completely agree. Well, thank you, Dr. Garden, for joining me today. I really appreciate your time, and I'm glad that you're here, and I'm so glad to hear what you had to say. Thank Uh, you. I hope we can keep in touch. Me too. Please feel free. Great. Have a a wonderful evening. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Constructing Differences podcast. To find out more about this project, visit representationsofdifference.com or at representationsofdifference on Instagram. Special thanks to Jan Deirdrich for helping me through the IRB approval process, Dr. Olwan for provoking my thoughts on solidarity, and Professor Lori Brown for being my mentor on this project and so many others. Finally, thank you to all the participants who agreed to speak with me on Zoom throughout the month of April. Your time, words, and thoughts were greatly appreciated. Mm-hmm.